Hunt is dead and I killed him. It's the guts at the box set. Hi. I'm appropriator of femininity and living proof that God is dead, Maddie Hunt. <laughs> and I am Cameron DeWitt. Uh, Maddie, um, yeah, I guess you'll be the new guest host <laughs> yeah. of the show. Yeah, now that Nathan is dead. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's um, been a long time coming. It- you can you can say that again. Yeah, uh, uh, I love how we um, s- started this podcast as like two cishet <laughs> dudes, yeah, <laughs> and and we have graduated. We've graduated. So, yeah, I I believe the thing that you said at the time was that as almost I don't think you quite turned thirty yet, but like as almost thirty year old guys. We need to have a project in order to like keep up our relationship, or you phrase something like that. Yeah, we have to go to the shop. Yeah, we have to, to go to friends. the wood shop and like run the saw a little bit and drink some beer. Yeah. Um, and it turns out that uh, that that was a lie. That yeah. wasn't. That was not right. Um, yeah. So uh, I'm coming out. Um, yeah. Uh, we'll be talking more about transition related stuff um i think in the sort of after show typically we have like a mini show every week and that's like released on a separate feed but uh for supporters but for this one i think we'll just do it after the ending theme music and we'll do like 15 or 20 minutes to like do a little bit deeper dive into some free emotional labor (laughs) some free emotional labor (laughs) and education and all that stuff for all you cishats out there, of which there are not probably very many that are listeners. <laughs> I think we have a fairly good audience. I don't know. I mean, depends on where they came from. Yeah. Um, at least from the ones I know on the Discord, I think they're yeah. pretty queer. Um, yeah. So uh, other than that, yeah. Uh, Maddie is the new name. And uh, I use she or they pronouns. And um, yeah, we're just going to go from there. Great. And we'll go into a deeper dive if, if you want at the end. So this is season 25 of Think 25. Outside the Box Set. Um, Think Outside the Box Set. Mark 2. Mark 2. <laughs> One more game. <laughs> uh, and you had a, a pitch mm-hmm. for this season. Would you Did tell us I about this pitch? ever. I was like, um, <clears throat> I was like, Cameron, Nirvana. Uh, I mean, Cameron's known for a very long time about lots of gender stuff on my um, part. And uh, I was like, Cameron, I think I want to like actually come on, um, c- come out on the show. And I was like, how about that goes along with and dovetails with Nirvana? And the reason for that is I've always wanted to do Nirvana because they're <clears throat> so foundational to the Pacific Northwest music scene. Their shadow looms really large, um, or at least it did when I was growing up. Like Kurt Cobain had killed himself, you know, six, eight, ten years prior, but it was still like Nirvana country. Yeah. Um, and I was like, at some point we should get to Nirvana on the show, but I felt like I never really had a take or a lens or anything like necessarily interesting to say about Nirvana, except you know just encountering the music and. I was already fairly familiar with it. And people love having Nirvana takes. It can mm-hmm. be like a bit exhausting mm-hmm. to hear people wax enthusiastic about mm-hmm. Nirvana yeah. and the types of people who usually yes. wax enthusiastic about mm-hmm. Nirvana didn't want to necessarily like add to the pile. Yeah. That's the thing because like 
a lot of Nirvana's legacy is, um, musically, it's like the entitled white rage of um, grunge music. Yeah. Um, in in broad, broad terms. Um, and I really was just expecting that to be like Nirvana's whole thing was like, this is going to be a bunch of like toxic dude shit, you know? Um, but, but the question is, what if Cobain's rage wasn't entitled white dude rage? What if it was something else? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that would fit more with our, the premise of the show, which if this is your first episode listening, hi, um, Cameron, do you want to? go through our show premise i'm talking a lot right now oh my god um well this is typically i mean i guess this was um (laughs) he must not be named (laughs) uh job (laughs) to uh go through the the title of the show but he's dead now now. (laughs) yeah um yeah so we we listen to discographies of artists that may be um uh, misunderstood, mm-hmm. unrecognized, uh-huh. or dismissed. You did it! Oh right. my god! I think that's the first time I've said it I'm without so proud reading of you, it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you have a pitch for yeah, maybe why Nirvana meets one or more of those uh, categories. Definitely not dismissed. Definitely not dismissed, but maybe misunderstood. Yeah, maybe potentially unrecognized. Yes. Um, because as I've been going on this whole gender journey um i've been frequenting more uh trans femme spaces on the internet um well broadly like trans but also um specifically trans femme because that is the communities that i resonate most with um and at some point i just ran across someone just casually mentioning like oh by the way kirk cobain was a trans woman we we are claiming her and we are not going to give her back yeah um (laughs) there's a We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes. There's like, I think there's like one tweet in the last year or so that um, really like popularized this whole thing. Although it might have been sort of like swirling around. Uh, I saw some him. articles like from back from like 2016 mm. or like people, maybe not articles, but people complaining about complaining? trans narratives <laughs> oh. <laughs> being applied to Kurt Cobain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so um, I was very, very curious about that because, because also specifically of um, the concept of transgender rage. I'm craving a lot for my friend Kate here, so shout out to Kate. But I want to read a few little quotes from uh, Susan Stryker's My Words to Victor Frankenstein Above the Village of Chamonix Performing Transgender Rage. Um, Susan Stryker is a trans historian and academic who is uh, super badass. I've, ne- I've never heard of the concept of transgender rage before. It, I mean, makes sense intuitively. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. but I'm, I'm curious to hear more. Yeah, we'll, de- we'll deep dive a little bit, or we'll dive into it more, I think, a little bit later. But it's all about the kinship that Susan Stryker feels with Frankenstein's monster. My feelings were those of rage and revenge, the monster declares. I, like the archfiend, bore a hell within me. And then later, uh, this is Susan Stryker's words, rage colors me as it presses in through the pores of my skin, soaking in until it becomes the blood that courses through my beating heart. 
It is a rage bred by the necessity of existing in external circumstances that work against my survival. And one of the hallmarks for me for Nirvana was always that it's very angry music. Um, it inspired a lot of very angry music. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like we said, a lot of it has felt very um, entitled White Dude Rage. Um, but, uh, shit, where was, where was I going with that? We're, we're drinking Manhattans right now. And, <laughs> and, and my ADHD has been especially rough the past uh, month or so. Um, the past uh, 33 years, 34 <laughs> years. Yeah. 35 now, actually. Uh, 35, oh my God. Oh, I'm getting old. I'm getting into the middle age, yeah. Um, well, yeah. Um, oh, Nirvana's music had always been felt very ra- uh, rage-filled to me and very um, intentionally choosing ugliness. And that's something mm. that makes me think of something you said on episode 200 of Get Up In The Cool, your other podcast that you cheat on me with, um, which is is and is about acoustic, mostly all-time music, fiddle and banjo shit. You should all go check it out if you haven't yet. Um, On episode 200, Cameron talks about their sort of queer experience um, in a very public way, in a very courageous way. And you talk about camp and how camp is intentionally choosing, like, bad taste or something. Yeah, I don't remember what I said, but, uh, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about, like this kind of thing, I think, when we were covering Lil Nas X, mm-hmm. because, um, you know, basically he's he's doing all of these sort of high camp sort of drag, like, performances mm-hmm. that are, like, intentionally kind of, like, upsetting to the sensibilities. I mean, the lap dancer Satan, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people have got, like, really upset that, you know, there's all this like religious imagery being appropriated. Um, mm-hmm. And what is he? What does he say? He he said something along the lines of like, you know, people have been telling me like I'm going to hell my whole life, and now that they're just mad that I'm thriving here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and yeah. and I think there's something to that that is that is camp. You know, the mm-hmm. idea that like. Uh, what if the thing that you think is gross is actually hot? You know, what mm-hmm. if the thing that the thing that you think is actually detestable is actually um, grander or higher than? Um, and you know, sort of like leaning into <laughs> leaning into that, and that's that's really interesting to apply that to Nirvana. That idea had never occurred to me before. I feel like that's going to be like maybe especially challenging in this album after listening to it for the first time. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. We, we, for those who haven't listened to this show before, we um, go through the artist discography in order. Um, we typically only cover studio albums, but Nirvana only has, by the most strict definition, they only have three studio albums. Yeah. Um, so we'll probably throw in Incesticide, which is a like compilation of B-sides that was hastily thrown together after Nevermind was so successful. And we are talking about maybe doing MTV Unplugged maybe also. Maybe MTV Unplugged. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, we might be tired by that point. But yeah, we'll see. I don't yeah. know. But I mean, it's a short season either way. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we'll have the, the energy to do that. Yeah. Um, and I don't necessarily want to make the focus of this season to be... Um, 
deciding definitively whether or not Kurt Cobain was a trans woman. Yeah. Um, I know several people who are pretty convinced. Uh, my friend Kate is ve- very convinced um, mm. and has quite a bit of quite a bit of evidence to back it up. Mm. Um, so I think I think what I would like to do. Um, you can tell me if, if you think this is dumb or if you want to do something quite a little different, but I think maybe this will change. Maybe I'll change my mind, but sort of agnostically use they, them to refer to Interesting. Cobain. Yeah. And, okay. Um, I wonder how that might change the way that I talk about the music of Nirvana oh. just by ungendering it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I might just call them K Cobain. Interesting. Like the initial K, but also like K-A-Y. I don't know. Yeah, like the jelly. Like the jelly. Sure, great. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> you mean KY jelly? KY jelly, yeah. Oh, I was saying K, like K A Y. Okay. I heard I miss I didn't hear the A. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh every kiss begins with is what you're mm-hmm. saying. Yeah, oh, great. Every kiss begins with K Cobain. <laughs> every kiss begins with <laughs> KY jelly. <laughs> Well, good. There's I mean, an episode title. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, I think this is... Yeah, because like Nirvana's music always struck me as being very profoundly ugly and a songwriter who was very specifically like being um, provocative and like using kind of like provoking and ugly imagery. Yeah. Here's another quote from Susan Stryker. When such beings as these tell me I war with nature, I find no more reason to mourn my opposition to them or to the order they claim to represent than Frankenstein's monster felt in its enmity to the human race. I do not fall from the grace of their company. I roar gleefully away from it like a Harley straddling, dildo packing leather dyke from hell. <laughs> Susan Starker's great. Uh, I, I think it's so interesting. Um the things that uh, trans folk claim, uh, maybe especially trans femme folks, mm-hmm. uh, because of this specific type of offense that trans femininity uh-huh. is to the yep. sensibility. Yeah. Um, uh, for instance, yep. I don't know if you've heard the blank check episode with a- Emily Vanderwerth. Vanderver- uh, Emily on- St. James, no. Oh, oh, very good. Yeah. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't. I didn't know that there was an additional new name. Awesome. Yeah, she changed okay. her surname for. I don't know if that's a personal thing or if it's just for like professional stuff. But yeah, she's Emily St. James, great. Yeah. Um, uh, she was on Blank Check mm-hmm. and was the guest for their episode on The Thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, and apparently she when they heard. They were doing John Carpenter, uh, blank the the blank check boys. Uh, she said, "Hey, I have a trans take on <laughs> the thing, and she, and it's not just my take; it's a thing yeah. in the transphobe community." Mm-hmm. And I, and yeah, listening to her describe like her sort of claiming of the thing as like a trans narrative is just like this is what you chose. <laughs> this is crazy, <laughs> you know. Like this is yeah. Um, the like the alignment with the monstrous uh, that seems to be almost like a theme in the trans I think trans femininity is so, uh, is so challenging to me mm-hmm. um, in its like commitment to um, you and I both 
went to George Fox University. <laughs> we knew a lot of um, a lot of young women at George Fox University that were trying to kind of like navigate Christianity and spirituality, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and were starting to play with the idea of the divine feminine mm-hmm. and things like that. And yeah. read a lot of Mary Oliver and stuff, yep. uh, which and all of that is great and you know, bare minimum, a stepping stone, if not something to hold on to. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes when I hear uh, trans femme folks uh, speak about, uh, when they invoke, like, archetypes mm. and invoke gender, it's it's not that. <laughs> it's not the divine feminine. You well... Know? <laughs> it's Frankenstein's monster, or, like, the thing. Mm, I have two quotes Please. from... Susan Stryker to read to you. Um, these are all from that same essay, which we'll put a link in the show notes to some version of it. I think there's, I don't know if there's a publicly accessible version out there, but we'll find something. Anyway, <clears throat> the transsexual body is an unnatural body. It is the product of medical science. It is a technological construction. It is flesh torn apart and sewn together again in a shape other than that in which it was born. In these circumstances, I find a deep affinity between myself as a transsexual woman and the monster in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Like the monster, I am too often perceived as less than fully human due to the means of my embodiment. Like the monsters as well, my exclusion from human community feels a deep, sorry, fuels a deep and abiding rage in me that I, like the monster, direct against the conditions in which I must struggle to exist. And then, later on, There's this very telling passage. Monster is derived from the Latin noun monstrum, divine portent, Mm. itself formed on the root of the verb monere, to warn. It came to refer to living things of anomalous shape or structure, or to fabulous creatures like the Sphinx, who are composed of strikingly incongruous parts. Because the ancients considered the appearance of such beings to be a sign of some impending supernatural event. Monsters, like angels, functioned as messengers and heralds of the extraordinary. They served to announce impending revelation, saying, in effect, quote, pay attention, something of profound importance is happening. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. Yes. What a brilliant piece of rhetoric. It's incredible. <laughs> That's it's, incredible, yeah. <laughs> it's such a, the essay is like, it's like partially like, poem partially personal journal partially like work of academic literary criticism it's it's pretty incredible yeah Yeah. well yeah i'm really interested to see how we might talk about uh nirvana and kurt cobain in in light of that Mm -hmm. um here's what i'll say i'm going to try to I'm much more interested in talking about Nirvana in light in light of this like mm-hmm. lens, or maybe reality uh-huh. of uh, of Nirvana uh, than anything else. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think it might heighten my ability to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, we'll see to what extent I'm able to like. I don't know. Be like just fully dive into that and not be just completely meta about it you know yeah. we'll see because uh-huh. because listening to this album is very challenging for me and there are a lot of things that i very much disliked about it mm-hmm. uh 
And there's part of me that wants to say, like, you know what? I don't think this is just, like, respectability politics or something. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to compare this to some of the, especially early ICP Mm -hmm. and Korn, um, Mm -hmm. especially certain moments in this album. And, um, but that is my temptation. But I'm more interested in trying to uh, view it through this lens. I guess what I'm trying to say is, if anyone feels like there is a double standard being <laughs> being given to some of the content in this album, which is pretty similar to a lot of in on the surface to mm-hmm. like some corn and ICP stuff, uh, I'm going to try to like engage with this through a different lens on purpose uh, for fun <laughs> yeah okay yeah. i mean we cut icp so much slack um that's true if, if this is your first episode listeners um we, our second season we listened to all of icp's albums all 15 or what yes. 18 <laughs> there's so many high teens yeah yeah uh we, and that's not even counting like all their spin-off projects and their eps and like all that other stuff but um we sort of approached it from the idea of um i guess I think it, it, it goes back to Mikhail Bakhtin, which is the idea of the carnivalesque in literature, which is like the the break in social order that um, challenges, but also ends up kind of reinforcing the social order. Right. Um, and how like that was, um, and we, we've talked a lot about like empowerment for like very marginalized and like very po- impoverished communities and like, we, I mean, we definitely added, like, gender and, like, masculinity and, like, empowering through, like, fantasy violence and whatnot. Um, yeah. So we ended up cutting them, like, quite a lot of, probably more slack than we should have, but we were, like, trying to engage on a different level than just being, like, ICP's uh, a, a gang, as the FBI was calling it at the time. <laughs> I don't know if they still do, but... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we definitely, yeah approached them with a lot of grace but we also spent like the better part of uh a season uh sort of saying like god i'm such fucking tired of listening to these fools (laughs) (laughs) so but yeah i agree that also is within the grace that we were yeah that was a graceful take i Mm -hmm. think still yeah even as it almost destroyed our podcast yeah yeah um we should definitely get, because it's been, oh, like half an hour already. So there's oh, yeah, been a lot of tables in. But do you want to do very, very quickly, you, we typically go into yeah. like our own experiences with Nirvana. Do you want to tell me? Mine, I think, was like fairly typical for Pacific Northwesterner, like a kid. Um, just feeling like it loomed large, over, loomed large over everything. I listened to their albums a little bit, but wasn't like a super fan. How about you? What's your experience with Nirvana? Yeah, I have never listened to an album all the way through mm-hmm. of theirs. Um I had only heard individual songs. I probably heard Smells Like Nirvana, <laughs> the Weird Owl <laughs> parody, mm-hmm. the Marbles in the Mouth and all that, uh-huh. uh, before I had heard Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think growing up, I knew that they existed. Mm-hmm. At some point, I became a big Foo Fighters fan, and then I put it together that Dave Grohl, the eventual drummer Uh, for Nirvana mm -hmm. and the lead of Foo Fighters is the same person. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I never really listened to them. And then I think more in recent years, I've developed a a little bit of um, an allergy to 
what I perceive to be uh, Generation X ennui and mm. aloofness, especially but not exclusively uh, when uh, embodied by white folks. Mm-hmm. But maybe also just period <laughs> in general, like yeah, um, yeah, and uh, and sort of associating Nirvana with that. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I wonder about like our difference in experience. Two two big things. Mm-hmm. We are two years apart in age, mm-hmm. which can make a really big difference when yep. it comes to cult like pop culture references. Uh-huh. Also. You have you have a big brother, yeah, um, or a an older sibling, mm-hmm. and I was the oldest sibling, mm-hmm. and I feel yeah. like your big brother is like elder millennial, maybe early Gen X. Like I don't know, like is like mm-hmm. had had like more access to that kind of thing, um, and is more on that. Um, more on that edge of that generational divide or closer to it at least slightly Um, yeah slightly um i don't know where the like official divide is um for some reason i think it's like early 80s and my brother was born in 86 okay so that that's still yeah so but it is closer as you say yeah it's closer so like i i wonder if um if there's like a little bit of a difference there too like where it is a little it's it's always felt a bit easy for me to dismiss uh, Nirvana. I don't think it's just you either. I, okay. I do think that Gen X has tended to produce works that even when they're highly critical and highly deconstructive are very easily misinterpreted or co-opted. There's sure. some huge examples just like right off the bat, like Chuck Palahniuk, Fight Club. Yeah. And the movie that they made out of it has been like, you know, adopted by weirdo like men's rights activists and like Absolutely. nazis same thing with the matrix Red yeah Pills, the, yeah wachowskis you know? are a classic example classic example of wachowskis. <laughs> gen x yeah. like culture yeah yeah where it's like yeah. they managed to create these works of art that were um fairly progressive in their implications a lot of times not completely but like fight club is a deconstruction of like masculinity um at least the book is it's been a long time since i've seen the movie it it's it it feels like very specifically and very um, apparently like v- very obviously like deconstructing masculinity at the time, but it became a cultural artifact that was perverted for the, right. the exact sort of thing it was criticizing. And right. of course, like the Matrix, the Red Pill, and all that all that shit. Um, so it I wouldn't like, surprise me if the same thing happened with Nirvana. Yeah, I feel like in modern day like pop culture because internet hot takes move so, so much faster um, because of the like r- relative democratization of um, of the consumption of culture and who gets to have opinions about it mm-hmm. um, you know the idea of like someone having a viral tweet you know who is yeah. otherwise unheard of as opposed uh-huh. to having a like previous platform like um mm-hmm in a position of power. Like right. for instance, the person who made the like Kirk Cobain was trans. We will not be returning him. Uh, mm-hmm. Will you remind me of their name? I want to say that was Myra Burnt, but that I know that she's a like musician and I might just be like conflating those things. I'll, I'll look it up. Just yeah. Now. But like 
that kind of thing, maybe, you know, Nirvana was able to be so more like so much more like effectively co-opted because it was harder to have a loud hot take uh, about the band Mm. or about the person uh, Keiko Van. Um, Magdalene Visaggio. Magdalene Visaggio. Great. um, Tweeted on January 23rd, 2022. Kurt Cobain was a trans girl. She is ours now. We will not be returning her. Um, and there's a good there's a good article from Into More that sort of covers it in a, at a fairly broad level that we'll we'll put a link in the show notes. That is the other thing, and maybe we'll get into this more in the future. But I'm I'm very fascinated by what is the divide in um, queer history, like his historian historying. I don't know what the verb, <laughs> the gerund form of that would be. Mm-hmm. Queer history retelling. Historicizing. Mythologizing. Mythologizing. Yeah. Like, I can never tell, like, where the line of sort of rhetorical intent, like, ends and earnest, like, no, I think this was queer. You know, like... Yeah, because she's definitely, like, a bit tongue-in-cheek about it. Absolutely. Yeah, like, Pretty, yeah. pretty obviously, yeah. Uh, whereas, like, um, Becca and I have been listening to um, Joe's Boys, a, um, oh, a, a podcast to... about little women. Oh, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, there is very good reason to believe that uh, Louisa May Alcott, who commonly went by Lou to mm-hmm. everyone who knew them um, intimately Mm -hmm. and would write in letters and in interviews, like, I feel like I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like I need, you know, like uh, just like over and over and over again, um, casting themselves as a husband, a father, Mm -hmm. uh, all of these masculine roles. Like there's so much evidence there. That's just like, okay, this isn't actually a rhetorical hot take anymore. Mm-hmm. Like there's so much material here that it's like, yeah, it's not that it's not a stretch to say like, if this sort of like identity politic had like existed at this time in this, in the way that it does now, like Lou Alcott would be a trans man, you yeah, know, like, absolutely. Um, whereas like, I've only done a little bit of digging into Keiko Ben, uh, but it is a little bit hard to tell is this just like a cur- a curious man, you know, or a um, or or a a provocative person mm-hmm. who's right. more interested in the provoking itself, right? Like than- David Bowie seemed to be more interested in like provoking rather than establishing a specific identity or right. claiming something, right? Right. Mm-hmm. But he also like in his private life did stuff that was extremely provocative that he didn't publicly talk about i mean he, <laughs> like fucking Mick Jagger. <laughs> yeah i mean he publicly talked about being bisexual like 19 in the 1970s and it like was a, a big controversy and he like backtracked i think yeah. if i remember right mm. but um there's definitely evidence about Kay cobain that we don't necessarily need to get into on this episode because yeah, we're like sure. going really long before getting into the music especially but um also lou alcott is a great example joan of arc Another great example. Yeah. Hmm. Um, 
And there are lots of people who say like, you can't look at the past and say that someone was transgender because that didn't exist back then. Right. That identity, that word did not exist back then. So they possibly, there's no possible way they can be. Um, and I think that's kind of bullshit. And um, mm. part of why I think that is um, what is very, very uh, famously among like trans circles called the no, the uh, the null hypothesis and cis being C-I-S, obviously. And in science, um, the idea is you take evidence and you do an experiment and then you do a statistical analysis to see if the evidence that you have gathered um, proves beyond random chance that what you're, the question you're looking at can be um, confirmed to some extent or other. And if it's not, you fall back on the null hypothesis, which is that there is there is no um, there is no um, effect or whatever. So, like to give an example, like um, you know, does the Dare program like actually prevent drug right. um, drug like addiction in schools or whatever? The null hypothesis would be no, it doesn't. And so you need to gather evidence to say like, oh no, our evidence actually shows that greater than you know would be reasonable to expect from random chance we do see an effect. But the null hypothesis is the default. It is the thing that is um, asserted without evidence. Um, like, and typically that is because it's something that is like well-established or right. is... Heteronormative or heteron cisnormative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And in science, it's like well-established, there's tons of evidence for it, or it's like, you know, everyone knows that like this thing. But we get into trouble with things like identities. Right. And this is something that... Um, a lot of eggs have to go through, an egg being a, a trans person who is not aware that they're trans, which is what I was for a very long time. Um, because, okay, this is another like tangent, but like there are definitely people who like know from the very beginning, like when they're three years old, they're like, no, mommy, mommy, I'm a girl, I'm not a boy. Right, um, sure. And there are people who just like know that and are very articulate about it and speak up, and that is absolutely valid. There are plenty of people like Neo from The Matrix who don't know right. what's going on. They just know that something's wrong. Yeah. And um, what? And so the, the term for that, the slang term is egg. And so what a lot of eggs have to go through is like figuring out like, am I actually trans? Like, um, it's, you know, such a small percentage of people. Like, how could I possibly be this? And there's a, there's a very influential essay called The Null Hypothesis, which points out that that is very cis-normative that is just accepting that everyone is cis until proven otherwise. Right, yeah. And we don't subject being cisgender to the same standard of evidence that we hold transgender status to. So it's like, you have to prove that you're trans. You don't have to prove you're cis. Because right. you just assume that you're cis. Yeah, I guess it, it's sort of that line between um, what is sort of a, a social sort of technology. Um and what is something like inherently true or present and and then saying also being cisgendered is a is a social technology mm -hmm. as much as being transgender is and mm -hmm. you have to regard both as social technologies mm -hmm. and and not one as like the default or yeah the null hypothesis yeah or the natural or the like sure. normal way right which yeah. is sort of how it's constructed 
Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's really interesting. Um, so the the writer, Na- I believe it's Natalie Reed, challenges people to like look at the evidence, try to be impartial about it. Yeah. If you look at the evidence, does the evidence indicate transgender status or cisgender status? Right. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for Kurt Cobain or K Cobain, yeah. Yeah. Um, as it were. Um, apparently, they wore dresses even in private, just like around their house. Right, which um, would be an indication mm-hmm. that they're not just trying to be a provocateur. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, they wrote about wishing they were gay and feeling that they resonated more with uh, women than men. And yeah, yeah there's. I mean, we can... wishing they were gay. That is such an interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like the the intersection of sexuality and gender, and like the conflation between the two. Um, that I've heard various maybe eggs in history mm-hmm. s- sort of communicate that kind of thing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, should we? We should definitely get into we, the actual. We're, ho- we're hoping to like talk more about this afterwards, uh, but maybe we should talk about Nirvana for a minute. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like this has all been necessary in sort of posture setting for how we're going to talk about this music. Yeah. And I feel more prepared. Yeah. Um. So Bleach released in 1989, um, two years after I was born, actually. Um, the year I was born. <laughs> um. And um, apparently, I, this is something that's interesting. Um, Kirk, or sorry, Kay Cobain. I'm reading. I'm like looking at Wikipedia right now. Kay Cobain um, said that they felt pressured to conform to the grunge sound that was popular in Seattle at the time. Interesting. Which is it's so funny because like Nirvana became like the grunge, grunge torchbearers yeah. and like introduced it to the wider world, and they just like didn't even really like it. Um, Weird. And there's definitely some like pop songwriting on display here from from k absolutely um in ways that from the limited exposure i have to other like grunge music i don't necessarily hear or like you know new metal or whatever um and then cobain claimed that most of the lyrics were written the night before recording while they were feeling pissed off and they did not regard them highly interesting yeah so he they, they that's also like, helpful back through it yeah. <laughs> backstory for this um that's that feels like kind of a Kay Cobain move to just like very flippantly like flout the expectations. And um, I mean, they weren't famous at the time, to, but just be like, yeah, there are people who search for meaning in, in lyrics. Fuck them. I'm just going to like throw all this shit down. Yeah. So hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, should we, should we talk about songs? Yeah. Blue, past tense of blow. Yes. We'll get into blue. <laughs> So deferential in the verses. Yeah. Um, and then that chorus of that, <laughs> that is almost like just really putting a lampshade on the like dashed off nature of the lyrics. Is there another reason for your stain? Could you believe who we knew stress or strain? Here is another word that rhymes with shame. <laughs> yeah. There's genius annotations saying like, 
Many fans have tried to figure out what word Kurt Cobain is referring to. <laughs> is it cocaine? Is it fame? Game? Or, or blame? Uh, but, yeah, I think the explanation of he he's not trying to have some sort of, like, hidden meeting here. No. He just read this, like, the night before. I mean, he, it's, it's a placeholder. Care. It's, it's yeah. like um, Doe a Deer. There's sure. that, uh, what's the one that's a note to follow law? Oh, uh, law, a note to follow, so. That's it. Okay, yeah. I mean. Which is, like, a total placeholder <laughs> lyric. Like, I mean, in, in the context of, like, the story, she's, like, extemporizing the whole song, right? So, like, it's, you know, supported in that way. But, like, it's also very clearly, like, a placeholder lyric. <laughs> I wonder if I'm the first person to draw a critical analysis between Nirvana and The Sound of Music. Uh... I, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, yeah, it does sound like uh, that was on, like, sir, to be edited. Yeah. There's a TBA <laughs> lyric. Yeah. TBD. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, there's all this stuff in the genius annotation about, like, what this song is ostensibly about. And it's very irritating because I don't think that the text supports it. And now after hearing that backstory, it's like, I don't know if Kurt Cobain would support it either. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it was the first um, original single that they released. They released Love Buzz as a single, but that is a cover. So this is their first, um, like, of their song. They're their actually written songs that became a single. Um, yeah, there's not a lot of unique lines in the song. The verses are, there's like one verse that's repeated. And if you wouldn't mind, I would like to blue. And if you wouldn't mind, I would like to lose. And if you wouldn't care, I would like to leave. And if you wouldn't mind, I would like to breathe. I feel like there's not, I mean, it's just a bunch of essentially like, I don't know, bullshit, basically. <laughs> yeah, like some of these sentences don't even really track and not, and like into what end. <laughs> Who's to say? Yeah, yeah, like the whole idea of blue, right? If you wouldn't mind, I would like to blue, B-L-E-W. I would like to have blown. I would away. like to have blown. I mean, maybe it's <laughs> about know. drugs and cocaine. And I mean, maybe that could be supported by I would like to lose, I would like to leave, I would like to breathe. Um, so, yeah. Could so do that. The genius know. lyrics are trying to say that this song is about like a sort of like unsubscribe button uh throughout the song kurt cobain talks about not living up to his full potential despite being given the ability to do it i disagree i don't think the song says that nope uh blue is more like a realization of the fact that you can be something greater but choose not to go down that path um is it though i don't think yeah (laughs) i don't think it is um I think the best <laughs> lyric in this song mm-hmm. is hidden among a lot of other poetic bluffs. Oh. Uh, and it's this second line of the verse. And if you wouldn't mind, I would like to lose. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really good lyric. That's a good, that's a really interesting really idea. Really good lyric. If you wouldn't mind, yeah. I would like to lose. Uh, the rest of this, I could take it or leave it. I think that is a powerful line, mm-hmm. uh, especially for a line to that was tossed off the night before. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
You had a sound sample. Um, oh, it's just a shitty guitar, guitar solo. solo. It's yeah. fine. Whatever. Yeah, you can play it. Yeah. yeah. Fine. Yeah. Is it? I mean, I don't know if it's, don't know. it's Whatever. not very good. <laughs> We've heard worse on this show. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, um, do you want to go on to Floyd the Barber? Oh my God. Yeah, a content warning for sexual assault. Yes. Yeah, so this is where we get into some pretty deliberately provocative stuff. Um, as Cameron said, definitely content warning. Um, so skip ahead, you know, five minutes. Um, Bell on door clangs, come on in. Floyd observes my hairy chin. Sit down chair, don't be afraid. Steamed hot towel on my face. And the chorus, according to the genius, the chorus is, I was shaved, I was shaved, I was shaved. To me, it sounds like I was shamed. Which is what the genius says the second chorus right. is. But either way. <clears throat> okay, so uh, Kurt Cobain has this quote that says, Why in the hell do journalists insist on coming up with a second-rate Freudian evaluation of my lyrics when 90% of the time they've transcribed them incorrectly? <laughs> and to that I would say, you're not like... Over Overly pronouncing no. your lyrics, they're really, <laughs> like they're really not. calm down. Yeah. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, and also, you're, I I feel like your lyrics are asking for a second rate Freudian evaluation. <laughs> like they really are. Yeah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> so apparently, um, a lot of the names in the song are from the Andy Griffith Show um, because he talks about Barney and Floyd, Opie, Aunt B. Um, so he's, or sorry, they are very deliberately like taking the, this like image of like the idealized small town and very, very explicitly perverting it. In verse two, Barney ties me to the chair. I can't see. I'm really scared. Floyd breathes hard. I hear a zip PP pressed against my lips. Yep. So that is, um, sexual assault. And then verse three, further sexual assault. I sense others in the room, Opie, Aunt B, I presume. They take turns and cut me up. I die smothered in Aunt B's muff. So, I mean, it's very fetishistic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily say that it has like some sort of metaphorical purpose. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like the agenda here if there is one is just to say like anything that anyone would perceive as wholesome is probably actually completely deranged mm -hmm. uh which i guess like has some cultural value 
mm-hmm. to it. It feels very queer too to be like the the values that they've taught you, the wholesomeness. It's not only is it a fucking lie; it is fucking evil and is degrading and awful. Yeah, that this uh, Andy Griffith show is more satanic than Aleister Crowley. You know, like I mean, I mean. I guess like we've also like kind of reclaimed Satan and whatnot too, but like right, but this not is, at like, this really time. Evil. You know, this is like during you know satanic panic mm-hmm. or at the tail end of that at yeah. least, and where this kind of storytelling was. I hadn't thought of this, but this is this kind of um, uh, shock and awe was mm-hmm. being used in bad faith mm-hmm. to describe. Uh, to describe Satanists or uh-huh. Wiccans or queers. Uh-huh. So that is a little interesting to think about. Like there is like, it's almost like some QAnon style, like eliminationist rhetoric uh-huh. being directly reversed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That being said, it is still very offensive to my sensibilities to listen to this song. Yeah. And part of me listening to this is like, you know, how valuable is this? Or is this just like, a more extreme version of, you know, Billy Joel's, like, who needs a house down in Hackensack if that's all you get for your money. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like, the cynical part of me wants to, like, kind of relegate it to, you know, like a sort of Bart Simpson, just like... Don't have a key. Don't have a key. Yeah, like the, the sort of, like... Cow of Bunga. You know, uh, very underdeveloped sort of resistance um but i don't know maybe there's more to it than that i don't want to listen to it again yeah it's <laughs> you know like, yeah i don't know it's i think at a certain point we're getting into the discussion about what is consciously intended by the artist versus like what is coming out of their unconscious especially knowing that like he dashed off the lyrics so quickly yeah and i think there's probably a lot going on in the unconscious there's a lot of like gender and sexuality issues like floating around in here there's a lot of respectability politics and like deliberate perversions and stuff but i also think like i would guess that they didn't you know consciously think of any of that when they were writing lyrics right yeah yeah i want to give this in light of everything that we talked about a little bit more grace than we gave like icp or corn or slayer when it seems like they were interested in it, like, what if what if there was a serial killer? Can <laughs> yeah. you even imagine? <laughs> Can you, know? you imagine? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this song feels, does feel intentionally more, like it has more of an agenda. Even just targeting the Andy Griffith show specifically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but rape. <laughs> yeah. Still. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's an episode title. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Please don't. <laughs> uh, we'll get canceled from Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, well, should we move on? Yeah. How about about a girl? Uh, prequel to About a Boy with H- Hugh Hugh Grant. Is that his name? With Hugh Jackman. Hugh, Hugh Jackman. Laurie. <laughs> don't need to brag about it. <laughs>
this is such a this is such a like a throwback like a Beatles song or mm-hmm. something. It totally is. Yeah, yeah you're right. <clears throat> um so this is apparently about Cobain's girlfriend at the time, Tracy Miranda. Um and apparently, I mean these are kind of like what the genius says. Uh, Miranda had asked Cobain why they had never written a song for her and they responded with this song about a girl. Um <laughs> Yeah, this can't have been what <laughs> what they wanted. Yeah, yeah this is, I don't think so. Yeah, this um, is uh, not ideal. <laughs> oh, <laughs> according to the annotation, also, uh, Kay Cobain wrote this after spending the previous night listening to the Beatles' first U.S. album, Meet the Beatles, over and over. So I think as much as Nirvana became like the, the torchbearers for grunge, I don't think Cobain was ever really like able to suppress their like pop songcraft yeah. and like their pop sensibility either. yeah um yeah there's definitely an th- there are these moments throughout this album of the- these anchors of accessibility and like reference to like the way that music is supposed to sound mm-hmm. um that pop music is supposed to sound mm-hmm. that i feel like sort of they they feel ironic mm. uh like uh um all you know the lyrics i'll take advantage while you hang me out to dry but i can't see you every night free like to this very beatles-esque mm-hmm. you know chord progression yeah. and melody mm-hmm. uh these very sort of like nihilistic like oh you want me to write a song for you <laughs> i'm going to write like the least mm-hmm. romantic song possible um but to these uh you know uh like well to, to, to this musicality that like the beatles turn into this you know like um this is the most romantic thing possible of that or time. a song about killing a girl or it, that's what this is, or that's what no. The Beatles do that sometimes. They sing songs about killing girls. I I don't want to overstate my case, but there is a song on. Um, it's one of my favorite Beatles records. It's it's either um, what's the one? Beatles for sale. It's like it's something about like, hey little girl, like if you hang around with that guy. Oh, fuck, what is it? Um, uh, it's not Meet the Beatles. It is. To help or rubber soul, maybe. Okay, well, to clarify, obviously they get into some like I- heavy irony territory. Late, I mean, like just Maxwell Silverhammer or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I feel like early Beatles are s- s- trying to not necessarily like swim in a lot of sort of irony. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that is supposed to be like detected. Ah. Like, I want to hold your hand and stuff like that. Like, I don't... I mean, maybe... I don't know. Maybe we should cover the Beatles at some I point. I mean, maybe. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the song called Girl, uh, which is written by John Lennon. The Beatles. Girl. He, he threatens somebody um, pretty aggressively. Well, he's very prolific, and I know he had it no, in it's him. it's not so, that song. Yeah. God damn it. Someday I'll figure out what song I'm thinking of. There is there is at least one Beatles song that is very threatening either to a girl or to the guy that okay. she's um, Interesting. theoretically seeing or whatever. Um, anyhow. 
Well, I'm trying to, I try to make a case that I feel like Keiko Bain is trying to like, is engaging in this musicality like a bit ironically. Yeah. Is using these conventional sort of like accessible pop sensibilities to deliver this like message that is like very uh, not romantic. Mm-hmm. I think, I think there are, there's a, I think there's a lot of interesting tension in the song. Um, I mean, you can hear, I think it's not necessarily directly irony. I mean, based on the lyrics, at least so much is just like a lot of tension because the verse is, um, I mean, it's repeated. It's verse one, but I need an easy friend. I do with an ear to lend. I do think you fit this shoe. I do, but you have a clue. And then the chorus is, like he said, I'll take advantage while you hang me out to dry, but I can't see you every night. And then they sing free, and then they repeat, I do, several times. And it's the contrast of being free and not being able to see someone every night with the archetypal, like, matrimonial phrase, I do. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting, like, pretty, like, diametrically opposed tension in the song between... Um, commitment versus freedom um, versus like potentially Kay Cobain's own feelings and emotions about this person versus like repression or wanting to escape maybe I um, I feel like there's also though like a little bit of like s- al- almost like slut shaming mm. maybe I don't know uh, maybe this is an ungenerous read but in verse 2 I'm standing in your line. I do hope you have the time. Mm-hmm. I do pick a number too. I do keep a date with you. Like this idea mm. that this person uh, they're seeking attention and affection from uh, that they have to take a number almost as if they were at the deli or something. Mm-hmm. Um, That's true, yeah. So, like, I, I don't think that, like, I, I feel like, I, I don't know if they're trying to, like, attribute power to this other person or if they're trying to, like, shame this other person or what exactly they're trying to... There's a lot to unpack here in this mm-hmm. song. A lot more than in the first couple songs, I think. Or at least yeah. the first song. Um, do you want to move on to... I don't know. I don't know if we can cover all of these songs yeah. specifically, but um, I don't need to talk about school. Um, yeah, maybe it'd be worth talking about paper cuts. I don't really care about the cover. Yeah, I, I think that's probably let's not. Let's talk about paper cuts. Yeah, let's talk about paper cuts. <laughs> So this is a song, uh, I describe this as like a, a fantasy of like mm-hmm. extreme maternal abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, this feels similar to some stuff we've heard from like, like Slayer or ICP, mm-hmm. which is 
what if we just imagined something horrible? Mm-hmm. And I'm not ex- exactly sure what the purpose of it is mm-hmm. other than the exercise of imagining something like dark. Um, and like, I don't know if, I mean, to do more <laughs> like, what did, what did, uh, Cobain say uh, a second rate Freudian uh, evaluation but like Uh again come on okay like this is uh, what do you want us to do with these lyrics Uh you're talking about this like hyper abusive mom like why are you telling this story about you know someone getting you know like a kid getting you know food pushed through the door and like not having access to any light. Like this is a very sort of heightened, almost like cinematic version of abuse that seems needlessly excessive. I'm surely it, it happens in reality from time to time, Mm -hmm. but this is like a, an example of abuse that seems, um, I don't know what the purpose of this is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, so according to some of the users on the Genius, um, who knows, like, again, totally unsourced, who knows how accurate this was, a guy that was buying drugs from the same guy Kurt Cobain was, had been locked in a basement by his parents with his sister while he was a boy. That's overall what the song is about. Huh. And um, LiveNirvana.com's archives um, seems to... Uh, concur saying it's it's a quote here on the genius i'm not sure if this is quoting someone in the band or what but this kid came from a family who tortured their children and kept them all in one room with black painted windows and a pile of newspapers for a toilet the authorities later found out and took the kids away the lyrics also seem to contain elements from kurt's relationship with his mother or their mother yeah interesting yeah yeah Um, I mean, there's there's a lot of like horrifying imagery. I, I mean, I, I've definitely like heard of stories of like extreme parental abuse like this, and it's possible that Kay Cobain just heard this story like second or third hand and been like, "Wow, that's fucked up. I'm gonna write a song about that or whatever." Like, I don't know. Um, or if or if they felt like a real sense of um, like empathy or if there's any kind of like identification or um, yeah, resonance they feel with the kids in this situation. Yeah. It's hard. Like if they really wrote these songs so last minute, it's hard to know which songs to give a charitable reading Mm. to and which ones to give a cynical reading to, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because this could be explained any number of ways. Like, Oh, I need something to write a song about. Mm -hmm. How about this? Like, horrible story mm-hmm. um maybe it'll get some shock value out of it or maybe something to that story like spoke to them and they were already thinking about it when they had to rush through some songwriting you know like mm-hmm. it's hard to say um yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah hmm. uh i mean I, it's one of the people in the in the um, genius calls out um the Pixies and the Nirvana was very influenced by the Pixies and the Pixies. I don't, I don't know if they were influenced by this point. Um, they're definitely influenced by the time of Nevermind. Um, but the Pixies like often shows like really weird and fucked up and like explicitly like 
incestuous situations imagined or otherwise to write songs about. And I Interesting. Don't know if, like, I'm only familiar with their like one song. Where is my mind? Yeah. Fight Club. Fight also. Club. It's all connected. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't remember any incest being in that song. Oh no, there's there's definitely um Nimrod's son. Uh, there's a line, you are the son of a motherfucker, which is later in the next verse. You are the son of an incestuous union. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I took some sound samples. I don't remember why. Um, do you want to play mm-hmm. those real quick? Yeah. Here's the intro. I really, I really like this intro. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is. Uh, I think when we start to get into a little bit of Nirvana's like atonal territory, mm-hmm. um, a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's still, I think, cl- clearly a tonal center in this song. But I think this is when we start to like really veer into dissonance with the band, um, and I like that. This whole intro is don 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 don, and then like, I think some pretty affecting like guitar noise. Like I actually really like those sounds, and they feel very intentional to me. I think it's actually hard to make noise that feels musical, like on a guitar, and I feel like this actually feels very musical to me. Um, it feels like an intention, like it feels like the timbres and the pitches are very intentional in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't necessarily know how to, um, back that up in a music, musical theory kind of way. I feel like it's a bit out of my jurisdiction, uh, mm-hmm. but, um, I like it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, do you want to play it pre-chorus? Yeah. Yeah, those vocals I think are really interesting. Like there's some sort of chorus effect there. Mm-hmm. either like created manually with two different vocalists or maybe it's K twice. Mm. Uh, but uh, either way, I think it's pretty interesting. Um, th- I think this is the first moment in the album where I felt like really engaged musically. I was like, Oh, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, and it distracted me from my, like, you know, just like looking at the genius lyrics <laughs> Well, what else should we what else should we talk see. about? Um, negative creep. I think we should talk about. Okay. Okay. okay.
I don't have any notes for this one. Mm-hmm. So this is um, one that people um, tend to interpret in a fairly autobiographical way from Kay. Um, in the pre-chorus, I'm a negative creep, I'm a negative creep, I'm a negative creep, and I'm stoned. And then, I mean, it's... There's a lot of, like, inchoate sort of fragments going on in the lyrics. Um and verse one is, this is out of our reach, this is out of our reach, this is out of our reach, and it's grown, this is getting to be, this is getting to be, this is getting to be drone, drone, like a drone that you pilot or whatever. Um, but I think it's really interesting to go from all of that into, daddy's little girl ain't a girl no more. Um, on the surface level, that seems to be about like maybe a girl losing her virginity or... The certain like if the first person is the negative creep, then Daddy's little girl would be the person who who they've just had sex with, maybe yeah, like or or that helped them establish their negativity and their creepiness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, to be like oh, or or maybe they like had sex with this person and they're like oh, this person is not a virgin the way they're fucking and like oh, obviously Daddy's little girl ain't a girl no more. Yeah. Um, but also I don't know to take it like. To think of Kay describing themselves as a negative creep, and then the chorus is "Daddy's little girl ain't a girl no more." I don't know. I think there's something interesting here with um, potentially like some buried or subconscious like gender dysphoria of feeling like a negative creep because you are not who you're supposed to be. And d- I, I definitely don't think there's anything conscious going on in the song, but. Yeah. To take the phrase ain't a girl no more right. is like interesting to me at least. I don't know. Yeah, I I mean I feel like this this lyric, this is out of our range and it's crude mm-hmm. is maybe like a good way to describe this song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's just like there's a lot here that we could like, you know, project meaning into and it's hard to say like what Kay intended with this song mm-hmm. or if they intended anything. And they, I mean, definitely, at least in this one quote have sort of, they seem like they're trying to dissociate like themselves from like, uh, close readings of their songs. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if they're just being like a little stinker about it or if they're just like, ooh, I actually don't want you to analyze me because <laughs> I don't want you to come up with any ideas about I don't want my you identity. To uncover anything about yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, yeah, which I, I also think is in some ways a little bit more of a a compelling argument uh, for like, or uh, a more compelling, compelling argument against like um, retroactive, like queer or trans readings of, of folks. It's Mm. it's because it's like, well, what do they, what do they want? You know? And it's Mm -hmm. like the, the issue of agency, but then it's like, you also run into issues of agency. Any time you talk about any dead person ever. Yep. You know, Mm -hmm. so it's like a little complicated, you know, but Mm -hmm. um, there's a very interesting case of this with the uh, musician Dave Carter. Also, I don't know them. Um, They were most there's actually an article on um, Country Queer about them. That was written by Myra Byrne, which is really good. But also El Sandafi, um, 
has a really good article about them. And my friend Kate has written about them also, but um, I, I shouldn't say them. I should say her because Dave Carter was in a duo with Tracy Grammer and was starting to get some um, momentum and was like pretty well regarded as a songwriter by people like Joan Baez. Um, and a couple months before she died, she had started taking hormones and she had like confessed to Tracy Grammer that she was planning on putting together an all girl country slash Americana band called the Butterfly Conservatory. And then she had a heart attack. Yeah. And Tracy Grammer insists on using he and him pronouns and the name Dave to refer to her. Um, which I think is a little bit, um, again, no hypothesis of like, sure. this person hadn't transitioned to the point where they were publicly a new identity or publicly using these new pronouns. Right. So therefore I, I will be using whatever they were using at the time that they died. Um, anyhow, I forget where I was going with that, but it's a very interesting story. And yeah. some of the songs are very powerful. The, the last one she wrote before she died, it was a sudden heart attack. Um, it's called Phantom Doll. And it's extremely telling. Um, huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't necessarily have a, like a specific takeaway from this, but um, I think that uh, anyone who's on um, TikTok should follow. I believe their handle is Prof Kinnan. Um, they're like a, a, a trans professor somewhere in Canada um, who specifically studies detransition. Mm, um mm-hmm. and they are the subject of you know kind of hate from everyone <laughs> like uh-huh. they receive a lot of hate yep. uh even though um my perception is that there are they are studying detransition in in good faith mm-hmm. and very scientifically mm-hmm. and trying to figure out the what it means to detransition and why people do it mm-hmm. um and i think it's a really interesting topic because it it's at the you know it's at the intersection of people's agency mm-hmm. and their concepts of identity uh and the internal truth within and who and who gets to claim that truth um all that stuff's like really tricky um because like null hypothesis or not people are people are using language to describe themselves, you know? I guess that's true, yeah. You know? (laughs) Like, and they are choosing something, and maybe they don't have all the options. Uh, But even today, you know, there are people who choose to detransition for all sorts of, like, really interesting reasons. Yeah. Or to, you know, or, like, the kind of, like, modern classic example of um, that person who uh, wrote that, like, short story like you know i identify as an attack helicopter isabel fall yeah yeah who detransitions um publicly and it's like uh i don't know yeah there's a lot to unpack there's a lot to unpack especially isabel fall um real time follow-up i found the beatles song i was thinking of oh very good it's from rubber soul it's called run for your life and is mostly written by john lennon the opening (laughs) lines are well, I'd rather see you dead, little girl, than to be with another man. You oh better keep God. your head, little girl, or you, or I won't know where I am. Um, and then the chorus is, you better run for your life. If you can, little girl, hide your head in the sand, little girl. Catch you with another man, 
That's the end, little girl. This is just like um, like a field recording of John of John Lennon just <laughs> like speaking, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like. <laughs> uh, and I don't know. I I think maybe there's an argument to that it's maybe like ironic or trying to be deconstructing of like extremely misogynist pop music because that was very prevalent. But I don't know if I really buy it, and sure. it's pretty scary and fucked up. I mean, yeah. So, anyhow. Okay. What um, else? Should, what else should we talk about? We have only four more four songs. songs. Scoff. I have a, I have a sound sample for Scoff. It's this interesting melody. Okay. Uh, let's listen to the general sound sample, and then we'll do that one. Yeah, so this is like an abusive father figure. Mm-hmm. That's what this song is about. Uh, it is sort of a, like the speaker in the song is being defensive. In my eyes, I'm not lazy. In my face, it's not over. In your room, I'm not older. In your eyes, I'm not worth it. Uh, kill a million, uh, heal. Or heal a million, kill a million. Um, give me back my alcohol. <laughs> not a whole lot to work with here yeah but it's yeah it seems to be like a like a father some sort of father figure to me um i don't know maybe that's reading too much into the very little text that we actually have here yeah let's get into like, the interesting melody as you call it Yeah, the way that interacts with like what the guitars are doing is kind of interesting, especially. Yeah, um, especially because like my perception is that Kay is playing guitar and singing. Like, this the, is a three piece. They are the one credited. With, well, there's another person credited, but that was like kind of a uh, uh, a gift to that person. They don't. That person actually does not play on the record. It's yeah. all the guitar, as far as I can tell from Wikipedia and whatnot, is um, played by Kay. So yeah, this is like a bit of an a bit of an atonal melody. Um, the, I think the guitar is doing like something something like do 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 just over again, and then Kay is singing in your eyes. I'm not lazy. So just going back and forth between do and sol, um, but it it doesn't track melodically in some sort of like mm-hmm. when I'm teaching like, uh, fiddle tunes to my, um, students, I say like the most common movement in fiddle tunes and also kind of like most melodies, as far as I know, and like most traditions is stepwise motion through scales. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning you have a scale and you step through it, and that's the most common motion is going from one note to the next note higher or the next note lower, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's, uh, you know, 
second most common motion would be like small leaps through the scale followed by probably a step back in the direction from which you leaped mm-hmm. yeah, and and so on like there are all of these like little kind of unspoken conventions of how melody is how we expect melodies to be conceived mm-hmm. um and uh yeah k doesn't really do that a lot of the time mm-hmm. and like i said earlier when they do that it kind of stands out and it feels almost ironic um like it's like why are you being a poppy all of a sudden <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like are you trying to make some sort of point mm. um so the, yeah this feels very atonal to me um yeah and uh i think kind of like from the halfway point of this album towards the end there are a lot of moments that you know I think there's something special about the trio aspect of Mm -hmm. this band because no one's playing cowboy chords at any point. Right. Like, there's no chord progressions in this music. There are three lines. You know, there there are the drums, Mm -hmm. and then there's the bass, Mm -hmm. which is a line, and then there's the guitar, which is not really playing chords. They're playing power chords, which is essentially lines with uh not even triads with power yeah with fifths and octaves octaves built on top of them Mm -hmm. so there's it's all counterpoint uh and because of that there's a lot of interesting stuff i think especially in the back half of this album where it's like i can't really say where the tonal center is Mm -hmm. where is the um doe deer a female deer Mm -hmm. at any point it's like i don't actually know if there is one is there a doe at all? Is there any yeah. any kind of deer, let alone a female deer? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I... I think that's something really interesting about what I've heard so far of Nirvana is uh, Cobain's, like, conception of, like, melody and pitch. Um, at no point do I feel like he is... Uh, like, they are talk singing. Mm-hmm. It feels like they're really intentionally choosing the pitches that they're choosing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're making melodies. Uh, and they're making them pretty consistently. Like there's like strophic songwriting like forms mm-hmm. here where they're repeating sections. Um, and returning to the same melodies. But the melodies are really bizarre. And they feel like intentionally atonal, but they're very consistently atonal, returning to the same pitches, which makes me think this is on purpose as opposed to random. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Mm. Which is is very musically engaging. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Just having your perspective with music theory and whatnot. (laughs) Shout out to Justin Dunkert. Uh, You mean... What you, Dustin what? Junkert. <laughs> wow, I just spoonerismed our good yeah, friend. You did. <laughs> Holy shit. Dustin, it's... shout out to Dustin Junkert. Um, I really, I just caught up with those episodes and I really enjoyed them. Really such enjoyed a delight. Yeah, yeah, those really episodes like are great. Uh, I feel like I had, uh, there are moments where you were like, ah, oh, I wish Cameron was here to talk about music theory. And I was like, ah, I wish, oh, it's fine. <laughs> it's better without me. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more just like being aware of my own inadequ- inadequacy <laughs> also well, too. I've just been like, uh, I know there's something going on here and Cameron could talk about it, but I can't, but I know there's something. Yeah. Well, those were delightful episodes. Yeah. 
things. And not the most in need of <laughs> I mean, yeah, someone who's space jam and stuff. slightly less in debt now for their degree in music theory, <laughs> but thank, thanks, Joe Biden. <laughs> Dark <laughs> Brandon. Yeah, <laughs> Dark Brandon. <laughs> okay. Um, I vote that we do a very quick check in on swap meet and then talk about Mr. Mustache okay, a great. little bit and then we, we're done. Okay, great. Um, so here's swap meet. That's that's a little bit Slayer to me, I think. Yeah, chorus. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I think there's some interesting imagery and gender stuff going on here, and Kay's perspective is kind of interesting. Um, the way that they describe this, this scene and these people. There's this couple, um, and Kay writes, They live a lifestyle that is comfortable. They travel far to keep their stomachs full. They make a living off of arts and crafts, the kind with sea cells, driftwood, and burlap. They make a deal when they would come to town. The Sunday swap meet is a battleground. She loves him more than he will ever know. He loves her more than he will ever show. And yeah, then, this music, this, this song is so like whimsical. It's like a little character study. Mm-hmm. This doesn't feel like it should be this like heavy. Yeah, keeps his cigarettes close to his heart. Keeps her photographs close to her heart. Keeps the bitterness close to the heart. Interesting. Um, the fact that like. Kay is looking at this scene and reading so much into it and this like very traditional like gendered relationship. I think there's also a lot here in terms of like Kay feeling like an outsider in their own hometown, which is Aberdeen, Washington. I think that is part of also probably the, an aspect of the rage of like the working class rage of someone who is, who grew up in a town that was created and then, eviscerated by capitalism yeah it's a it's a logging town from what i understand a lumber town i drove through it actually a year or two ago and it's very depressing now i don't know i mean i've i've heard that it was also very depressing in like the 70s and 80s when Kay was growing up um but yeah i think i think Kay is is um bringing a lot of that perspective of like feeling very very alienated and cut off from this um lower class or working class culture and these kinds of like conventional relationships also yeah although the relationship depicted here like they say they live a life that is comfortable they also say they make a living off of arts and crafts mm-hmm. it sounds like they make like beach junk yeah exactly so Aberdeen is on a bay i think okay so it's not technically on the Coast, it doesn't think. sound like like a waspy couple or something. Oh no, it's you know? definitely yeah. not. That. Yeah, I think it's I think it's like the the working class or lower lower class like um, version of like a conventional relationship. And huh. a lot of what Kay writes about it is so telling to be like she loves him more than he will ever know. He loves her more than he will ever show. Like that's the classic dichotomy of the cisgender heterosexual relationship sure. of like American culture. Of, right. like, the emotionally unavailable man, and uh, he's not perceptive of, like, the way that the woman loves him, and he can't express his love for her, you know? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, this is a really interesting song. It's very interesting, yeah. Uh, there's not a ton of unique lyrics. I think we've like just read all of the unique lines. Yeah. Yeah. Uh one one quick music theory thing about this song. I think that I always appreciate is when a song starts without percussion and you don't n- know where beat one is or you mm. assume where the beat one is one place and uh-huh. then the percussion comes in and you're like, oh, hold on. <laughs> That's, that can't be right. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, this song does that because um, when the drum set comes in, um, it, I think it really recontextualizes uh, where beat one is. Um, so like the verse goes... I think it starts on the end of one. It's like they live a lifestyle. They uh, they live a lifestyle that is comfortable. One, they travel to uh, they travel far to keep their stomachs full. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's already kind of an odd phrasing to begin mm-hmm. with. Uh, and if you're trying to figure out where beat one is in the sound sample, um, listen for the drums, um, the snare. It just does like a ultimately a traditional like two and four snare mm-hmm. uh but it's not necessarily where you think it's going to be yeah yeah so oh and we should just note um this is before dave Grohl joins the band this is chad manning on drums on almost I thought all it was songs. chad channing chad channing is chad manning the guy from nickelback that's chad kroger oh maybe i'm thinking of chelsea manning <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Chad Channing. You're right. It is Chad Channing. Okay. So here's that fake out phrase you can't we're talking about. Like, I think this is what, right? We're listening. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, yeah. four. It flips it upside down. I can actually do that when we're not doing it over <laughs> Discord. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it'll line up. Exactly. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's go to Mr. Mustache because I think there's a lot here. I like that the band stops right after poop is hard as rock. <laughs> <laughs> Too much fiber. Yeah, there's um, the lyrics are pretty uh, obfuscated. Um, I think I think there's definitely some stuff going on here with um, K raging against the path that is expected of them and the person they are expected to grow up to be, and that they. Um, see all around them in small town Aberdeen, Washington. Um, Fill me in on your new vision. Wake me up with indecision. Help me trust your mighty wisdom. Yes, I eat cow. I am not proud. Mm -hmm. Um, It's less clear in verse 2. Show me how you question questions. Lead the way to my temptations. Take my hand and give it cleaning. Yes, I eat cow. I am not proud. Um, And then the pre-chorus. Easy in an easy chair. Poop as hard as rock. I don't like you anyways, seal it in a box. And then the chorus is, I'm you, I'm you. Um, And I think this song is, um, 
It's not very comprehensible without the ancillary material, which is that um, there's a little comic strip that Kay created in their journal um, called Mr. Mustache. The same name as the song. I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't actually read it. I couldn't get it to like get to full size. Yeah, if you like, just zoom in on the page. You can uh, open it up to the extent that, at least to me, it's legible. Um, yeah, it's it's not it's not easy, but there is a guy with a mustache with um, he has a bunch of like hunting trophies on the wall behind him, and he is farting. And he's okay. holding a can of beer, and he's he's has his ear up to his wife or girlfriend's um, belly. And she's pregnant. And he is saying, my son, boy, he's going to be quite a man. Listen to the power in those little strong legs. He's going to be a football player. Next panel. This kid and this person is looking more and more deranged. I think they might even have a burger in their hand. Or if that's maybe that's the can of beer. This kid better not be a lousy little girl. I (laughs) want my I want my very own honest, hardworking bunch of slurs. Uh, hating 100% pure beef American male. I'll teach him how to work on cars and exploit women. And then he puts his head back up against the woman's belly. Ah, listen to those strong little legs kick. And then the very final panel is the legs kick through the woman's belly and kick through the man's skull and oh scatter his brains all over the place. And there's blood <laughs> in it. And it says kick in very bold lettering. Wow. So I'm glad you were able to actually get that larger so that you could read it because that's yep. very apropos. Yeah. Yeah. The very coercive um, gender roles placed upon this person before birth, assigned male before birth. Yeah. And the. Um, yeah, I think uh, that makes the song so much more interesting to me. To yeah. know that this is what was going through Kay's head. And to me, that reads as rage against gender and gender roles. And um, yeah, dysphoria. Yeah. Not that like a cis person couldn't also feel some of these feelings, but... Of course, of course. You know, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, I guess we have reason to believe that Kay has like a an especially vested... In, like an acutely <laughs> invested, you know, interest in uh, mm-hmm. um, thinking about this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, also on the line, on the line, poop is hard as rock. Um, the reason that Kay started doing heroin was for their stomach troubles. They had some really bad, like, digestive and stomach issues. Interesting. Um, I Does think heroin, my, ha- heroin help with that? I, I mean, it is an opioid. And those are typically prescribed pain. to deal with pain. Yeah. Um, okay. In fact, my, my friend Kate even goes so far as to call it an eating disorder, that what Kate was dealing with. Oh. Um, and then a lot of people, of course, like place a lot of blame on heroin addiction for when Kate killed themselves. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, but we can maybe get into that more later or something. But yeah, I think I think at least for this album. All of this stuff outside of the album informs and makes interesting the album in a way that is not very in the text of the album or is not necessarily all that apparent from the album itself. Um, And of course, I think part of that is just the dashed off nature of the lyrics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Who's to say like where the like lack of self-awareness or maybe like willful obtuseness like ends. Mm Mm-hmm. 
or where it begins and where the like um flippant nature of this songwriting ends mm-hmm. so, exactly yeah, yeah. well yeah. i i thoroughly enjoyed uh our uh, second rate freudian evaluation <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is great i can't wait to do this uh, for a I few more it. weeks yeah, yeah. <laughs> looking forward to it yeah Okay, well, thanks for listening, y'all. We'll be back next week with Nevermind. They're big, big hits. Um, uh, until that time, you can find us online at boxset.website, uh, Tweet Us at Topias Podcast. Um, you can... Oh, I keep hitting the mic. I hope that isn't too bad in the actual we'll audio. We'll see. We'll find out, <laughs> won't we? Um, you can support us in a couple different ways. Um, you can spread the word about the show, tell someone about it, Um write a review hit the stars you can also join our discord the link will be in the show notes it's a pretty low traffic uh pretty fun high quality discord um yeah uh i forget what else i usually oh you should listen to cameron's other podcast it's called get up in the cool i mentioned it earlier but it is a good show where cameron plays banjo and jams well not always banjo but usually yeah yeah and jams with guests and talks about music um yeah a lot of like old time appalachian fiddle and banjo music but not always um yeah and um until next week i've been maddie hunt and i'm a negative creep and i've been cameron dewitt and i poop as hard as rock We ended up talking maybe a little bit longer than planned about like uh, trans identity politics mm-hmm. and things like that. Trans uh, theory, yeah. Trans mm-hmm. theory. Um, uh, a little bit longer than, than planned in the episode proper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were trying to like save some of that for now. So maybe, yeah. maybe since we had a real zoomed out like kind of theoretical... Mm-hmm kind of discussion about it maybe we can zoom in zoom to in. more of the the zoom personal in. and the emotional um mm-hmm. as you know as much as you want to go there but um yeah yeah so uh maddie mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> great name thanks maybe we could start there did you where where did you find the name maddie how long has that name been like rattling around um i don't really know i don't remember when i started thinking well i have a long list of names that i was like Mm. just writing down on on a notes file somewhere i have never ever um felt like i resonated with my birth name at all i've never felt attached to it i've always felt um alienated from it um and i've gone through some bargaining phases Mm. um and for a while i was like what if i just change my name to something a little more gender neutral or like a little bit more effete i was like considering the name julian because i was like i've always liked the name julian it's kind of nice and it is definitely like a lot closer to a feminine name than a lot of like male names so interesting so you're considering like a full name change but maybe keeping a traditionally masculine name masculine yeah. yeah. Or was this before gender revelations when you were just like, were you thinking about changing your name just anyway? 
Yeah, I mean, I, this is, that's a difficult question to answer because um, so much of this stuff has been like subconscious sure. or um, only in retrospect makes sense. Like, I don't know, um, seven or eight or 10 or whatever years, years, as many years ago, I was like thinking, what if I have like a pen name or like a professional name? Yeah. And I was like going through like name selection process. Then I even like, like was looking into like domain names and whatnot. Um, so I was like very focused on like names there. And at the time I was like thinking to myself, I've never really liked my birth name and I've never really felt like I identified with it. Right. Um, but so, it was sort of like under the pretense of like, like a professional identity. Yeah. yeah. At, at that point it hadn't been like any thought of like legal name change or anything. Yeah. I think it was, um, I think it was like last spring slash last, um, winter, when things really kicked into high gear, which is, I don't remember if that's, that is after you came out as non-binary, I think. But it was around that time that I listened to episode 200 of Get Up in the Cool, where you really um, talked in depth about your journey to getting to where you were at that point. And the interesting thing, I went back and re-listened to it again recently. The interesting thing is like, that was before you came out as non-binary. So you were only talking about yeah your sexuality i mean explicitly at least sure yeah right yeah um but i think it was such a revelation for me to hear someone talk about the process of figuring things out because as i alluded to in the, in the episode like the typical um coming out narrative is always presented as like it's very essentialist it's always like yeah this is who i am you know i i've i was born this way Right, I was born gay, and there's nothing you can do to change me, which I think was politically expedient in a time when sure. like, conservatives were pushing back and be like this perverted lifestyle choice. Right? I've literally, I literally had this conversation with my dad. You know, like talking about the like, should a baker be required to make you know a gay wedding cake? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and you know, uh, my dad said something to the effect of like. Well, being gay isn't a protected class in the same way that like being you know. Uh, black is, you know, mm-hmm. like that was sort of like his argument is like, this is like, you know, a choice as opposed to an immutable aspect of one's identity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, that's, you know, it made sense that people had to, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way yeah. in order to convince people like my dad, <laughs> you exactly, know, yeah. it's like, but then like when we're talking amongst ourselves, it's like, yeah, maybe to some of maybe for some of us that is true in mm-hmm. some very simple, obvious ways. But mm-hmm. for a lot of people, it's not. It's really not. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people. I think. I mean, it's always difficult to separate things, right? Um, but I think, yeah, it's. I mean, it's and it's also very problematic to phrase it in terms of like choice because, like, yeah, um, is it a choice for me to come out to a certain degree? Yeah. Sure. I could have probably survived thinking I was cis and <coughs> acting as if I were cis and right. not killed myself because of it. Um, I probably could have survived it. Um, but that's but that's a wild way to de- determine a mutable identity. It's like yeah. what you will or what one will or will not kill themselves over. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you yeah. know, slowly or, or, or like acutely, mm-hmm. you know, totally. like that's. 
That's a bad model. It is. For, yeah. ide- for talking about identity. It really is. It has to be more expansive than that. <laughs> yeah, it totally does. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, and it's like, yeah, the, I, f- I feel like the word choice doesn't really, like, make a lot of sense. But um, I forget what I was going to like, the whole choice discussion. But anyway, I was listening to you, like, talk about the process of discovery. And um, your background is pretty similar to mine, mm-hmm. like, growing up in conservative like religious environment and it was um honestly like pretty earth-shattering to me to hear someone who grew up in that kind of environment talk about the process of figuring out figuring out their own queerness and like um like the signs you had to look for and the ways that you had been specifically trained to not have the capability of thinking or considering things or even like things that were not possible to you um and i heard that and my mind was blown i was like oh my god this is like i resonate so much with what cameron is saying um it's a social contagion um (laughs) you know i groomed you (laughs) (laughs) okay groomer (laughs) yeah um so that that to me was like the first big i mean I say this sometimes where I'm like, it's stupid how long it took me to figure out, Mm. even just like in terms of sexuality. Like when I was in Boston, which is, I mean, it took me a very long time to like actually date in any kind of like real sense of the word. So I was like early to mid twenties by the time I like moved to Boston was like actually like going on dates and like having any kind of like sexual relationship with anyone um but at that time i was like on okcupid i was like i'll just put down like men or women i don't give a fuck i'll date a dude i don't give a shit like, right um i ended up not doing that because i had a run-in with like a very aggressive and pushy and kind of scary gay guy at a bar in boston who's trying to get me and my friend to go to a second location with him driving in his car and that was we just like disappeared instead um but it never occurred to me that I could be queer. Right. I was just like, I just thought about like dating dudes maybe. I'm like, right. <laughs> so what? As if that's a flippant sort of decision that like anyone yeah. would make. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I would go to queer at the Midway in Boston, which was this great, like, I forget if it was biweekly or monthly event, but it would just be a bunch of like queers in a room seeing karaoke at each other all night in a bar. And I felt a very real sense of like, belonging and just like like wow these are my people and this is like where i belong and then i stopped going because i was like oh my god i'm an intruder i am a cis hetero straight person and i'm just intruding on this space Hmm. yeah and so i stopped going so it is stupid how long it took me to figure some of this stuff out yeah 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 um that's relatable (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, people talk about uh, there are there are some people who are inordinately interested in um, validity politics mm-hmm. and having one's identity validated over one's positionality. Um, and uh, I don't know, like TikTok, for instance, has been like. Um, dunking on the same like bisexual 
she they like for the past like month for like uh being overly like concerned and having a big chip on their shoulder for uh being gate kept from the queer community Mm. um and basically all of queer tiktok lesbians bisexuals trans people everyone is just sort of saying like hey you have to stop (laughs) you have to stop this like um i mean obviously like by like there is gate gatekeeping and biphobia and those things are real um but like in my experience anecdotally uh i was really concerned about taking up too much space Mm mm-hmm and I was like, ah, I don't want to, like, center myself, you know? Like, I don't want to, like, make a big deal out of this. I don't want to, like... I also don't want to be perceived as being, like, an attention whore or something, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, basically every queer person that I talked to was just like, stop. Stop. <laughs> if you're queer, you're queer. It's fine. There is enough room for you. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, maybe an implicit, like, if you start acting out of line or something, like, we're your friends and we'll help you, you know? Yeah, like, totally, yeah. But, like, uh, yeah, it, my, yeah, my experience anecdotally has been, like, you know, queer people, but queer people are excited by people, yeah. people hatching or mm-hmm. people coming into themselves or um, people discovering things about themselves and, mm-hmm. uh yeah totally yeah and that i don't know that i mean there's a lot to unpack here of course but that reminds me of um i keep talking about her but my friend kate um wrote a blog post one time sort of comparing i think she grew up in some sort of like christian church that was less conservative and extreme than the ones we did but she's talking about how um the queer community is the is what the christian community says it is which is a community based around like ideals and the action and the practice of love at a community scale yeah um and like how much she appreciates that and how like that is not what christian churches are but it is what queer communities are at their best i I mean there's there's definitely like communities that are not great or not very loving or can be toxic or whatever i haven't personally experienced any of them but um yeah i have i have experienced like the, the action and the process of love at a community scale and as a community like um, dynamic in queer communities in a way that is very healing to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I want to ask you more specific questions. Um, well, I could say that it all started with the mushrooms. Well, it didn't start with the mushrooms. But oh, yeah. It, I didn't it, know if you wanted to specifically talk about this because at one point earlier in the conversation, I was like, is this before gender revelations, you know? And yeah. and when I said that, I was meaning, is this before your mushroom trip? <laughs> and so maybe you can speak about that yeah. explicitly. Um, so my egg cracked on a mushroom trip. It was a whole big omelet-style situation. Um, I should have got some cheese involved. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I went into the mushroom trip. I mean, I like to flippantly just talk about, like, the mushroom trip cracking my egg, but it was everything leading up to that too. My spouse was out of town. She has to go four times a year for these like in-person intensive um, things at her school. And I, I mean, stuff had just been like weighing on me for a really long time. I had 
experimented with what I thought was cross-dressing. Turns out I'm just a sweet cisvestite. <laughs> um, uh, Turns out you were doing drag the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I've been doing yeah, drag my whole before. life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and I had like experimented, experimented with like makeup and stuff too. And it had been just like something that I couldn't stop thinking about. It was pretty awe-consuming. It was definitely making it hard for me to actually do any work in the class I was taking. And this was like, I think the last weekend before my spouse came home. It was like, she, she was only gone for like, I think a weekend and a half or something. Um, but I went to the weekend. I was like, all right, I'm trying to figure out this question of like, you know, is this something I have to do something about? Yeah. Do I have to make a choice? Do I, I mean, the way I phrased it to, to myself was like, all right, I'm going to take this weekend. And for this weekend, I'm just going to take it as given that I'm going to transition. And I'm going to just try living with that and see how that feels um, to just like try out the mental headspace of being like, I'm making this specific choice. Even though I'm not committing to it, I'm just going to be like, hypothetically. And that's when I went on the mushroom trip. And so that I think um, mushrooms have a way of helping you break through repression and appreciate um, the beauty and connectedness of life and mundane things. And it's very, it's very hard to lie to yourself on a mushroom trip. Um, and so I just, um, yeah, leveled up. I broke through lots of like repression and, um, everything. And I'm, I'm so glad I did this. I made a bunch of recordings uh-huh. at the time. Um, audio, audio recordings. Yeah. Audio, like voice memos. Um, and sometimes, like, sometimes I get on mushrooms and I completely lose my mind and I'm not capable of speech. There was one memorable mushroom trip where I put a metal bowl over my head and was just going, <laughs> just like hearing the reverberations, like off the metal bowl, out, you know, mm-hmm. back into my head. And um, that was very pleasurable for me. And that was a very nice way to spend a couple hours. But I was still capable of speech. And I recorded a bunch of voice memos and... Um, I, it was a little surprising to me actually to revisit them and hear myself um, refer to myself as Maddie because I didn't remember it in that way of like having felt fairly definitively like drawn to this mm. name because mm. um, I had the big long list and I had like mm. I didn't know the several... name went back that long yeah it huh. did um, and I don't really know like what it is about that name but I just felt like drawn to it and a, a sense of identification that I definitely didn't feel with my birth name it's interesting because it also is only kind of like a few degrees removed like from your birth name like it feels like tangentially tangential too yeah I can <laughs> yeah. see that mm-hmm. yeah like there's some similar consonants and assonance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to the name yeah and um, it's also like not that far removed from a sort of not very gendered name. There's a there's a non-binary cartoonist that I like very much um, who is going by uh, Maddie Lubchansky, but M-A-T-T-I-E yeah, yeah. because their birth name was um, Matt, Matthew, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's like kind of a, a homophone with something that is ostensibly at least like, you know, gendered a different way or less gendered or something you know? yeah mm-hmm. yeah i mean it was definitely 
a lovely moment when you sent the message saying like, hey, I've been going by Nat for a minute. I hope it's mm-hmm. okay to like go yeah. through a couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> uh the the beta stage yeah. or whatever or maybe <laughs> the pipeline. this yeah yeah the pipeline to refer to the meme yeah you, yeah and you had a uh a, th- a thoroughly gender neutral and then there is this moment where you're saying like i've actually been like testing maddie mm-hmm. which is this thoroughly non-neutral it's like oh mm-hmm. we're in trans trans femme territory yeah this is not uh just an eschewing of masculinity. There's something else going on here yeah. that's being represented, which is through also the culture of names. Yeah. yeah, which is also something I can kind of credit you for, Mister hmm. uh, <laughs> Mix Social Contagion yourself, um, uh, because at my rehearsal dinner, I forget if it was the night before the wedding or if it was like a day or two, but very close to the wedding. Um, you gave a toast. I think it was a toast or a speech or something, but you... I said, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Hear ye, hear ye. <laughs> I said, Webster's Dictionary <laughs> defines... <laughs> Marriage is a land of contrasts. <laughs> um, and I don't remember all that you said. You talked about my spouse and I, Rachel and I, but something that really struck me at the time and really Mm. stayed with me and became a lot more significant and integrated was when you spoke about me and you you described me as a very nurturing man Mm. and i had never heard anyone name that quality in myself let alone value it and speak of it in a positive way and i was like oh my god i i guess i am like i've never heard anyone call me like nurturing but yeah, I guess that is like like a very large part of who I am. And the way that I like approach my life and my relationships. And um that is something that is like so traditionally coded as feminine. Yeah. Um that uh I think that ended up being like an important signpost for me to like head in the direction of. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, uh it's always hmm, how do I say this in a way that's like respectfully anonymous Ah. here's what I'll say Uh a um, relatively new friend of mine once or or recently asked me Mm -hmm. the question why non-binary why not just a you know an expansion Mm-hmm. of what masculinity mm-hmm. means mm-hmm. you know which is a great question it is a great question yeah you know because mm-hmm. like obviously masculinity manness maleness whatever mm-hmm. that neat it's not going to go away right yeah you know mm-hmm. but it does need to change yes you know mm-hmm. and it's like uh it it can't it's unsustainable Mm-hmm. As, yep. it currently, yes, it as it is. currently uh-huh. is you know and it's like i need to be able to like there needs to be able to be for for the continue continuation of the spe the species uh-huh. uh more wedding toasts where where people say you're a nurturing man mm-hmm. and then that person continues to be a man yes you know there needs to be people need to embrace 
non-patriarchal masculinity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, <laughs> that is not what happened. Nope. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think it's so so interesting that, like, I don't know, that when you heard that, uh, that resonated with the not a man part of you as mm-hmm. opposed to the... Um, Oh, I wonder if my conceptions of like manhood can change. It's it's just like I don't know. Those categories are so so fraught. Mm-hmm. And it, what I ended up telling my friend is, you know what? I thought about this a lot, and I seriously considered what you were suggesting because I agree that that needs to be a thing. And I was like, do I want to stick around? Do I want to be a bodhisattva of manhood? You know? <laughs> do I want to like? Uh, stay in that category and like shepherd, you know, people who want to like join this new definition of manhood. And like, at the end of the day, it was just like, no, Mm -hmm. it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And I don't want it to be, it doesn't feel right because that's not what manhood is. But at the, but I also just can't be like, I don't know. This is not who you are. It's not who I am. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that like, it's almost like, I mean, not to retroactively, uh, like, assign transness to you any more than you would want to. Maybe maybe this is what you're doing. Um, hmm. But, like, it, it's almost like you're, he- you're hearing, uh, oh, is this the first sort of invitation that I've been kind of waiting for, <laughs> for you know, to yeah. have anything celebrated or appreciated in, in femininity about me as, like... Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe it was like because yeah. I was so criticized um, and or bullied uh, as a kid. Like my family would call me like melodramatic or oh. sensitive, and making it clear that sensitive is like not a great, yeah. necessarily good thing to be, or overly sensitive. I think. Yeah. Um, huh. So yeah, I don't think I don't think I had heard anyone speak positively about anything that could have been considered as feminine before yeah um and of course all of this is extremely difficult to talk about without sounding reductionist i I want to point that out to be like right to be like (laughs) to say that being nurturing is a feminine thing is I, i i still don't feel like i have a great grasp on like how to define gender roles in a way that doesn't feed into like gender stereotyping or constrictive yeah. like gendering. Um, because obviously, like you said, there should be masculine men who can be and should be and are nurturing. Yeah. Um, a lot of fathers are like very nurturing, sometimes in different ways. Yeah. Um, but and, and and a lot of and a lot of women aren't. Yeah, that's true. That too. <laughs> yeah, a also. lot of moms aren't. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, yeah, sitting, like, aside how difficult it is to, like, talk about it without feeling like I'm getting into, like, weird gender stereotypes and stuff. Like, um, yeah, there's a lot of the more feminine parts of me that had never been recognized or affirmed before. And I think think this also touches on a topic that um, is a bit of a hot button and a bit of a dog whistle. It's a bit of a dog whistle button that's hot. Um which is the idea of socialization. 
Yes. And have you have you heard of this as as a as a turf line of attack? Of course, um, yeah. Yeah. I've received this line of attack. Oh, wonderful. I love yeah. it. Um, so and I have complicated feelings about it. Oh, me too. Yeah. Because I think there is, in good faith, some maybe usefulness to, to, to think about the ways that we've, that we've behaved in ways that are compulsory. Mm-hmm. And maybe in ways that on the surface are like, you know, uh, that we've been rewarded or taught to behave in, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's really complicated to talk about it. It's very complicated. And it's very, very fraught too. Yeah. Cause, cause the issue of positionality mm-hmm. versus identity mm-hmm. is like key. You have to like, you know, like the world sees me, even though I'm technically 90% of the time wearing women's clothes, mm-hmm. heavy air quotes, <laughs> but it's like clothes that are like in the women's section. Like, mm-hmm. People still see me as a white man, mm-hmm. American man, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, like able, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, and yeah, I'm like socialized in all of these particular ways, you know, mm-hmm. and I have to like, I do have to like own that stuff at the same time. I have to like own the ways that like the ways that I've been socialized have been harmful to me and not simply privileging yeah i think um several thoughts um one is that um gay people in the closet are socialized heterosexual in our society too yeah so yeah you wouldn't hopefully accuse a gay person of having closet privilege (laughs) or hetero privilege right i Um, mean in some in some ways, one kind of could. So, so Theoretically. Like, like historically, mm-hmm. there have been, you know, mask for mask, respectability, politics, um, style gay people who've, who have said, like, we are dissociating ourselves from the fairies. Mm-hmm. Um, from, yeah, that's true. Um, the horticultural lads, a real term that was used at the turn of the century. Oh my God, to, I, didn't, I didn't yeah. know that one. I desperately want to be in a band called the horticultural lads. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, but yeah, like this is like a, and there is a kind of privilege in that. It's like, can you, can you, again, a problematic like phrase, but can you pass? Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. how able are you to to wield the privilege, you know, that you've had imposed on you? Yeah. And I think, I mean, it quickly gets into like troubling waters. But I think there is something in terms of like, for instance, the fact that there are a lot of trans femmes in the tech industry specifically. Yeah. And I yeah. think a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that they were never discouraged from yep. getting into technology stuff and were probably like heavily encouraged because people thought they were boys and boys do computers and girls yeah. do Barbie, I guess. Even though like women were some of the earliest programmers because it was seen as like not that different from typists work. Oh, and so it was women's <laughs> That's work. hilarious. I hadn't heard that. Um, yeah. So there's definitely something there, but like the way it gets into like troubled waters is like TERFs and other, other folks use it to attack um, specifically trans women a lot of the time. And say like, oh, you grew up with male privilege and you were right. socialized male. And so that therefore right. you will never be a woman because you didn't go right. through like the formation process. Right. 
Um, and also your identity and viewpoint and validity are all suspect because you had so much privilege growing up. Right. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that it is not privileged to be in the closet. No. Um, it is maybe relatively more privileged than like people who are not able to be closeted. Yes. Maybe there's like some degree of like yeah. that kind of thing, but it is not the same thing as like having male privilege. Right. Especially because specifically um, any kind of gender non-conforming person who is assigned male at birth is less so now, but definitely very true in our time, just absolutely bullied and beat up and yeah. called all kinds of slurs and ostracized and um, tortured Yeah. Um, for being that way, Yeah. which I was. And the other thing about socialization that I think that this perspective like glosses over or purposefully, willfully misconstrues is the fact that socialization is not a one-on-one -on -one process. You are not put in a room with a socialization machine that zaps a bunch of shit in your brain. Right. Socialization is all around you and you're just tossed into this giant soup of different messages that conflict with each other and are intended for all kinds of different people. Right. And so to bring it back to what we were actually talking about, you know, 10 minutes ago, is that um, I've really been reflecting recently on how much that I picked up on and drew from socialization messages that were targeted at girls and women they were not intended for me yeah i was intended to have selective blindness and only hear the things that were targeted at me but because yeah. it's this huge amorphous cloud i was like picking up on lots of stuff that was not intended for me and so i think that goes back to like the issue of like gender stereotypes and like gender what are what are the um you know what are the characteristics of femininity what does it mean to be masculine yeah. um and can we talk about those in non-reductionist ways that don't yeah. just reduce to like stereotypes or like restrictive things um i i still don't think i have a great way of talking about it in those terms but i will say that like yeah a lot of like gender stereotypes and like gendered um formation and training is definitely stuff that I picked up on in ways that I was not intended to. Yeah, it's it's so funny. Yeah, when people talk about socialization, like the one-on-one -on -one aspect, it's like people act as if all of those messages are in private mm -hmm. and as if they're not all super loud and super public all the time. Uh -huh. I remember the first time I like was trying to describe to a cis woman the ways that like I was um, receiving messages that weren't for me mm -hmm. um, feeling implicated uh, by patriarchal um, messages for women mm -hmm. and then having to f you know not necessarily having like the theory or the language to be like what's going on here right you yeah. know it's like <laughs> I I am being hurt by this, but I also know that I'm not supposed to be hurt by this. You're supposed to be hurting. Right. <laughs> hurting. Yeah. It's yeah, it's like really The hurter has become the hurt. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm i de I'm definitely still being pretty profoundly affected by these by this culture and by these messages, but like 
there is maybe maybe in some ways I'm being shielded from some of the acute violence, but I'm also being uh, gate kept from any sort of like solidarity or support. Yeah, exactly. So it's just a really weird liminal space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's the case of lots of people who thought they were quote unquote really good allies. <laughs> Which is a common um, role for trans femme people to um, see themselves in before they realize, oh shit. Yeah, I just think they're neat. (laughs) (laughs) Marge Simpson. Yeah. (laughs) And their potatoes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I've been going to a support group for trans femme folks here at the Q Center, which is pretty great. Um, I've name dropped a few of the people I've met there. It's not Q QAnon. Yeah, it's not Q. <laughs> it predates QAnon. <laughs> Queer people existed before QAnon, and we will outlive it. Um, but yeah, it's it's for people on all parts of the trans femme spectrum, which includes all different sorts of folks, um, because it's also important to recognize that um, there's no such thing as, as binary. Um, I mean, we describe people as like, you know, a, a binary like trans femme or like binary trans woman or something really what that more means is like polarity they're close to like the poles of one spectrum or um mm. or another um but yeah it's it's a support group that's like pretty broadly for people who are intending to have a bit more of like a femme identity or presentation or whatnot mm. um so that's been really good, and there's a there's a discard too that I'm that I've been on um, for a while, which is sort of affiliated, but that's really good too. So, mm. yeah, there's mm. apparently Portland is like the place for like trans people, which I didn't know. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's cheaper than San Francisco, I guess, and less less of a right wing libertarian uh, tech bro hellscape than San Francisco. Yeah, interesting. San Francisco is pretty. Like all kinds of fucked up by um, like the Ubers of the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. interesting. I mean, not not that that hasn't had influence in Portland, right. but it, I think less so. And it's still cheaper than San Francisco. I remember when, um, yeah, when Alok um, performed here. I think back in like February or something. Uh, they were like, "Thank you, Portland." selling out the show I'm not particularly surprised <laughs> and then they're like if you have I know a lot of you come from the Midwest that's where I'm going next those shows are not sold out <laughs> please get your aunts and uncles <laughs> to come see me you know you're a strange and- family that doesn't talk to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> <coughs> there's a tweet that goes around every once in a while where it's like you know if you date a trans woman, you never have to meet her parents. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have to deal with any of the, uh, those like classic, like mother in law. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you admitted it. <laughs> you admitted it. Now you have to marry your mother in law. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Well, is this your first like trans femme? Like a community, then that you've mm-hmm. built. Yeah, well, I haven't I built sort that of you've 
wandered into. Wandered into. Yeah. Built for yourself. Yes, in the sense that I joined a pre-existing one. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, yeah, because I definitely spent a lot of time on various subreddits. Reddit's, Reddit actually recently cha- officially changed their slogan from, from um, I forget what it was before, but or, or it's the internet's front page or something like that. They changed it to Reddit, not just for Nazis anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a bunch of like pretty thriving like subreddits devoted to um, all kinds of like queer and gender nonconforming people. And, um, you know, at, because I was pipelining to a certain degree, I spent a lot of time on like the gender queer, like subreddits and like non-binary and whatnot but i ended up gravitating more towards like the various trans femme ones or <laughs> the big one is egg irl yeah have you seen that one no okay it's it's um it's full of people who um i think there's definitely like a healthy contingent of people who have like had their egg cracked and also a bunch of people who are in the process of having their egg cracked and people who are pretty conscious of knowing that if there if there are thoughts they allow them to, themselves to think that their life is going to change yeah um but it's it, they all just like have all these memes about like you know i went on amazon and i bought like skirt ghost mini uh, still sis though is like the classic like <laughs> ending line of all these memes um so yeah so those weren't necessarily really like communities for me i mm. posted a little and got some like helpful like support and feedback and stuff um but yeah this is like the first like real sense of community that i felt Hmm. um and i i'm trying to remember like i don't think i had like knowingly met any trans people like before you came out as non-binary i mean not that i'd like really gotten to know um or had like more than just like saw them across a room or something like and they met a friend of yours who's a trans woman. Um, and yeah, I there's been not much, um, you know, representation or um, I hadn't encountered a lot of like trans folks that I knew of, at least um, in my life before this. Mm. And that is, that is, you know, a perpetual problem of, of a group that is a small percent of the population and sure. oftentimes has to hide it in one way or another. Right. Um, like redheads. Yeah, exactly. They're always shaven. <laughs> I believe you're referring to the fact that um, there's some indications that the percentage of trans people in the general human population seems to be about the same percentage as those with red hair, right? Yeah, I yeah. think it's it's one of the most like compelling sort of uh, rhetorical arguments for like uh, validating. <laughs> You know, yeah, unfortunately, it's limited in how much it can help us because we all know redheads don't have souls, and <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> we can't claim to have souls based on that. And then red redhead cha- redheaded transgender folks forget about it. <laughs> Doubly unsold. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they have two vacant spaces yeah, where they should be souls. Yeah. Oh God, I just I met. Well, I didn't technically meet her, but I at the I was at a support group earlier tonight, and I, it's absolute. St- Stunning uh, redheaded trans woman was there. Hadn't seen her before. He's the first redheaded trans person I saw at the support oh, group. Wow. And yeah. then you just stared into the the vacuum of her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I screeched. Gazed upon the void. <laughs> yeah. I screeched like the the people in the invasion of the body snatchers and pointed. <laughs> 
<laughs> to laugh. This, this brings us back to that, like, uh, trans ide- identification with the mo- the monster. The monster, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. yeah, and it's, I mean, you yourself have, have expressed that, like, I, be- I believe you've, you've talked along these lines of, like, conservatives are right to fear us. Like, to fear queer people, because yeah. queerness itself is such a challenge, and it is it cannot ex- coexist with, like, patriarchal um, bullshit. And it, if you are going to tolerate and allow queerness, it is going to be a challenge to, like, the existing order, and may end up just overthrowing it. Yeah, that's the, uh, the issue with... I respect... I have... A, a fair amount of queer people in my life in my life who like especially like I don't know I have some like queer Appalachian folks in my life who are trying to interface with a very different like demographic and like mm. who are ready for a very different level of rhetoric and mm-hmm. engagement you know and like maybe are still kind of at a neoliberal level of what mm their audience is ready to receive, which is Uh just like, we're not hurting you. You know, like, let us, don't you, don't you value people getting to make their own choices, having, being able to like, you know, people are a lot happier. Yeah. The suicide rates go down a lot. If people are allowed to like transition, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, like what is, what is my gay marriage? Like taking away from, you know, your straight marriage, you know, Mm -hmm. but like, yeah, I the issue with that rhetorical argument is that like n- normativity is just that, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's anti-pluralistic. Mm-hmm. Um and it is very different to be straight than to be in a heterosexual relationship or to be cis than to be um uh on the surface, you know, gender conforming, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, those are very different identities. Mm-hmm. And, um, there are a lot of people who are, I don't want to make too many comparisons to race versus gender. Cause that gets really thorny, Yep. but in, in some, in some similar ways, the construct of whiteness is a similar kind of like a uh, con, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, some people have really bought into it. Yeah. As if it wasn't invented to make them feel like they are above mm-hmm. uh, uh, people who aren't white and therefore are easier to subjugate mm-hmm. <laughs> into mm-hmm. like, um, and to keep in their class. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of people who have bought into and invested a lot of resources and time and, and their spirituality even mm-hmm. their, their whole ass identities yeah. into cis normativity, heteronormativity and mm-hmm. yeah, being queer visibly in front of them is a threat because mm-hmm. they've built their homes on a, you know, on sand. Yeah. So Thanks, it is violent to do that <laughs> in yeah. front of them. It's in a certain sense, yeah. 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 And like, I don't know, like the queerer you get, I think the truer that is. Like um like the whole deal with like same sex marriage. Like yeah. that's great and it's I'm very glad that that court case was decided that way. 
but it hasn't been codified into federal law yet um, in a in a way that would survive just the current court. Um, and they have talked about trying to take that down next after um, Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Um, fucking but Clarence Thomas. Fucking Clarence. <laughs> piece of shit. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's great. But to stop there is very assimilationist and the much more queer like um, implication of like queer community and identity and thought is to tear down marriage basically to get rid get rid of the fucking thing like that is not like we should not be allocating rights and privileges based on this weird like hybrid of a legal contract and a like religious ceremony like that uh, that's fucked up that like you know well because before Robert Gefell v Hodges like that meant gay couples were excluded from that institution and the ability to like visit their wives and husbands in the hospital or like have proper inheritance rights and everything. Um, and now that that milestone has been achieved, it's like, well, polycules, where does that put them? You know? And like, we don't have to just have this normative idea of just two people in this weird relationship that, yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling, but like, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, like uh, it is kind of the slippery slope they warned us about, where it's like exactly, yeah. If, if we if we do this, then people just want to be like marrying five different people. And it's like, well, who the fuck cares? Like, right? Why not? Yeah, it's like it's almost as if people. There are some people who have some very vested have a vested interest in controlling the way that wealth is redistributed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, it almost seems like that. Yeah. It almost, it's almost enough to make you think. Yeah. Nah, it couldn't be. Yeah. No. Yeah. That does no. That that doesn't sound right. Yeah. It's it's. I mean, it's almost like you know a sort of like unionization of romance and sexuality, yeah. <laughs> which is like mm, that's getting a little too close. To... Bring in the Pinkertons. Yeah. <laughs> Shut it down. Yeah. <laughs> well. Um, I suspect we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, but um, mm-hmm. it's um, lovely to meet you. Thanks. Yeah. It's really nice to meet you, too. <laughs> to continuing to. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. That's in, in the recordings I made during my mushroom trip. I talk about, like, reintroducing myself to my friends. Yeah. And um, at one point, I, I see a cat walking across the the rock wall in the backyard i'm like oh hello kitty i'm maddie it's nice to meet you yeah (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. well thanks thank you thank you for um being such a gender bodhisattva to me and helping me facilitate and conduct this conversation here absolutely and for being so supportive and affirming of me at all times no matter what stage of the pipeline i was in yeah um well a big part of why I do it is because it makes me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's sweet.